This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Best-selling author and historian Neil Ferguson has a knack for taking the long view of events shaping our world. His new book argues that networks like Facebook are nothing new and have always been a force for change. Plus, today is World Cancer Day and the focus is on survivors. There are more and more of us every year, but also an increasing number of people who suffer lasting side effects, including one that's just being recognized post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll speak with Dr. Gary Roden of the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Lawmakers in Poland approved a bill this week that would impose jail terms for suggesting Poland was complicit in the Holocaust. The move has drawn outrage from both U.S. and Israeli officials who adamantly oppose the bill, saying it undermines basic historical facts and is an attempt to deny the Holocaust. Poland's ruling party says the bill is needed to ensure historians recognize that Poles as well as Jews were killed by Nazis. Poland has gone through a painful public debate after research showing many Poles participated in crimes against Jews. We buy car, house and life insurance. So why not extended life insurance? There's an innovative new proposal to keep Canadians from outliving their money a real possibility with an aging population. The National Institute on Aging says insurance would secure income for seniors at advanced ages. The proposed government-led pooled risk savings program would be completely voluntary and give retiring Canadians the option to buy into a fund that would provide a stable income stream starting at age 85. Alzheimer's has stolen Michael Joyce's memory and some of his speech. So when the New Zealand man forgot he was married to his wife of 38 years, he proposed, and they married again. His wife Linda turned to the community and asked if anyone could marry them right away, and people responded enthusiastically, volunteering to officiate and photograph the special day. The beaming couple exchanged vows at a scenic lake near their home as friends looked on. When the ceremony was over, bagpipes began to play as the newlyweds danced. How's this for a Zoomer dream job? A UK firm is looking for an adventurous retiree who wants to travel the world for free. The job involves visiting some of the world's most stunning locations, taking photos, videos, and writing a blog to create a relatable guide for future senior travelers. To apply, candidates must submit a personal statement outlining why they're the best person for the job. The company, Compare the Market, will announce the winner in March. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 
British historian and political commentator Neil Ferguson was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine in 2004. I chatted with the best-selling author about his latest book, The Square and the Tower, which argues that social networks like Facebook are nothing new, and history proves it. Social networks were not invented by Mark Zuckerberg, and this isn't the first time in history that social networks have disrupted established institutions. And it's usually been because of technology, with the printing press being the prime example. Usually, though, not always. It's certainly true that the printing press had a similar effect back in the 16th century to the internet in our time. So that analogy is good. But I think it's worth noticing that when you ask the question, why did Silicon Valley happen? Why did the internet happen in the 1970s and 80s to begin with? Uh, There isn't actually a good technological answer to that because it had much more, I think, to do with the readiness of the US federal government and particularly the Defense Department just to leave a bunch of computer scientists in California to do their own thing. Can you talk a little bit about the effect of the printing press and the Reformation and how did those network spread? Well, books were certainly very expensive before the printing press. And if one, you know, goes back to the, the 14th century, it took an enormously long time to copy a book by hand, which was the only way books could be reproduced in those days. The printing press introduced by Johannes Gutenberg dramatically reduces the cost of reproducing a book by about 99% and consequently greatly increases the volume of book production and the market for books. In fact, it's quite remarkable how similar that story is to the story of the personal computer in our time, which falls in price by about 99% once the likes of Bill Gates and uh, and Steve Jobs get started. That mattered because exactly 501 years ago, a man named Martin Luther decided he would mount a campaign to reform the Roman Catholic Church. If he had not had the printing press at his disposal, uh, then I think we probably seldom talk about him. He would have been just another heretic burnt at the stake. But because the printing press press by that time was pretty widely established in Germany and indeed in Europe, his message went viral. And with amazing speed, the arguments he made for reform of the church spread all over Europe. And that, it seems to me, is is why we can learn a lot from that period, because suddenly it had got possible for news, ideas, arguments to travel much faster to reach many more people than had been possible ever before. And it's a fundamental change in the nature of the public sphere as big in its time as the personal computer and the internet in our time. Uh, That also led to a a very prolonged period of conflict. Do you see a parallel also between then and now? I do, because back at the time, Luther didn't expect conflict. He thought he was going to create the priesthood of all believers. Everybody was going to have the Bible, be able to read it, have their own relationship to God, get rid of the corrupt clergy, and everything would be awesome. And it's a little bit like the predictions people used to make in Silicon Valley not so very long ago. If everybody is connected on Facebook, then everything will be awesome. And it turns out that everything isn't necessarily awesome when you create large social networks. Typically, what happens is polarization. It's not that everybody agreed with Luther. Some people did, a lot of people did, but a lot of people violently disagreed with him. And so you had about 130 years of deep 
and bitter religious conflict in Europe. In our time, far from creating a single global community, which was certainly what Mark Zuckerberg used to talk about, we've ended up uh, in, certainly in the United States, but I don't think it's unique to America, with polarization between ideological clusters. And so now when you look at Facebook or if you look at Twitter, uh, there's an astonishing polarization between the conservative cluster and the liberal cluster. Uh, The other thing that's striking is that regardless of network size, if you build an enormous online network like Facebook with more than 2 billion users, it won't necessarily just be truth, beauty, and cat videos that go viral. In fact, fake news turns out to go viral more than true news. Uh, And so one of the things I talk about in The Square and the Tower is the way that the networks of our time are behaving like the networks of the 16th and 17th century. Nobody expected the Protestant Reformation to produce a boom in witchcraft accusations, but that's what happened because the idea of witchcraft, of witches amongst us, went viral in the 16th and 17th century, just in the same way as crazy stuff has gone viral in our time. What we have just started to see uh, as part of the Me Too movement is that an accusation is enough to ruin someone, doesn't have to be proven doesn't have to be true, and that is similar to what went on with the witchcraft trials. Yeah, one has to choose one's words very carefully here, (laughs) because, uh, of course, the accusations then uh, were directed at innocent women, and many accusations in our time are directed at guilty men. Uh, So I'm treading like like an elephant walking on eggshells here, but the key point, I think, is that in any kind of social network-driven craze, and I think it's not too much to talk about Me Too as a a craze. Uh, Nobody planned it. It just kind of went viral from that initial starting point with the Harvey Weinstein accusations. Things very quickly accelerate to the point that due process goes out the window because the assumption on the network is guilty until proved innocent rather than innocent until proved guilty. This was very much the way in which the witchcraft uh, mania of the 16th and 17th century worked. So we always, I think, have to be careful here, no matter how righteous our indignation uh, is today towards uh, men accused of uh, sexual harassment or worse, or rape. There has to be some due process. We can't allow ourselves to slip into the habits of the past. And although we don't burn people at the stakes for accusations of harassment, we do destroy careers with astonishing speed. And it's hard to see many of those careers ever being resuscitated, even if it turns out that the accusations were unfounded. So this is is why I think it's important for us to study social networks in history and to realize that they have the power to do great good and indeed to help shape and change attitudes. But at the same time, because of the speed with which things operate, the speed with which things go viral, there is this danger that whatever the good intentions one sets out with, things can run out of control and innocent people can suffer. Neil Ferguson, thank you so much. My pleasure.
That was historian and best-selling author Neil Ferguson. His new book is The Square and the Tower. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, it's World Cancer Day, and there's new research about the emotional trauma of a cancer diagnosis. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. It's World Cancer Day, and according to the latest numbers, there are more than 800,000 cancer survivors in Canada. That's the good news, but for most of them, there are both physical and emotional challenges that remain when the treatment is over. That includes the shocking finding that 20% suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, and that is about the same rate as combat veterans who are afflicted. I talked with psychiatrist Dr. Gary Roden head of supportive care at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. It particularly occurs with illnesses of acute onset where someone is, you know, in a very short period of time now faced with a life-threatening illness or a very intensive kind of treatment. Because, you know, these kind of stress disorders, they're the response to immediate and overwhelming threat. And in this case, the threat continues because people have to live with this risk of the future and with the impact of a very intensive treatment. Most people feel anxious, uh, feel threatened by a diagnosis of cancer, but for some people, those kind of feelings are intense, they're overwhelming, and they're persistent. And people have said sometimes, well, of course, that's the case, but actually, those kind of feel, those kind of symptoms actually benefit from treatment, and so that it seems uh, unnecessary to have people suffer in that way. It seems to hit people with certain kinds of cancer more than others. You mentioned uh, acute leukemia. What else? We look at acute leukemia because that kind of cancer does often, you might be fine today and then have a blood test in your doctor's office next week and everything in your life changes. So we tend to see these in diseases like that at the time of diagnosis, at the time of recurrence, and when there's ongoing complications. So the person doesn't you know, have a plateau where they can kind of re- easily regain their bearing. One of the things that's interesting about this, when we look at acute stress disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder in this context, it differs in that respect. You know, people have looked at this in veterans. They've looked at it in victims of physical and sexual assault in people who've been involved in a sort of natural catastrophe. But in this case, the trauma is actually words. So it's unique in that respect. It's also unique compared to those other kinds of trauma in that the trauma is internal. I just looked at a survey from the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer that looked at survivorship, and it says that one of the things that bothers survivors is that they're told that feelings of anxiety are are totally normal. Yes. So that's not very much comfort for someone to tell you that they're normal if they're highly disturbing and interfering with your life. The way we would put it is it's common to have those symptoms, um, but those symptoms benefit from treatment. And we could say the same thing about pain, a physical symptom like pain. Pain is common in cancer, but pain also benefits from treatment. So in cancer treatment, what we're trying to do is provide excellent treatment for the cancer, but provide just as exceptional treatment for the patient and the family with cancer. What percentage of patients would suffer from depression as a result of cancer? We've looked at this in a variety of cancers, but if we were to go into a clinic today, we could find 15 to 20% may have significant symptoms of depression. And that's on top of the 20% who would have PTSD? Yes, it may not be the same people, but yes. What's the difference? 
depression tends to be the response to cumulative burden over time and to the meaning of the disease over time. So we follow people following the diagnosis. We find that depression tends to occur as disease progresses, as symptom burdens progresses and as the disease progresses, depression tends to become more common. Sometimes it isn't only until after all of the treatment that the person begins to think about, well, what does all this mean? What, you know, what does this mean for my life, for my body? And we can see depression occur sometimes at a later time. By contrast, anxiety is something that occurs early. It's the immediate response to threat. And in the case of certain cancers, it is recurrent. A lot of people feel that they haven't been heard. Yes. All of medicine has tended to focus much more on the medical, the physical, the biological than on the person. And I think it is patients and families, I think, who have been the strongest advocates to say that in the case of cancer or other medical illnesses, they're saying to us, we want the kind of care, the same kind of high quality care for ourselves to support us through this as we expect for the treatment of the disease itself. In the case of acute leukemia, we developed an intervention called EASE, Emotion and Symptom Focused Engagement. So this combines a psychological treatment. We provide strategies for people to manage symptoms of anxiety. We provide support through the process and we assess physical symptoms and have a triggered response to as quickly as possible alleviate physical symptoms. And in spite of it being a small sample size in this initial study, we found a very strong effect in the group who had the treatment compared to those who were in the control group by this fairly minimal intervention. It's World Cancer Day. Yes. And according to the latest numbers, which are uh, not that recent, there are more than 800,000 cancer survivors in Canada. Yes. That's good news. Well, we know people are living longer, which is very good news. We've been able to prolong life. The prevalence of cancer is rising, largely because the population is aging. Cancer, like many other diseases, is a disease of aging. So we're seeing more cancer. We're seeing more survivorship of cancer, but we're seeing more of the problems. They're a little bit more delayed in people who are living longer now sometimes. Is there a period of time after which, for most people, it kind of subsides. You know, at any one moment in time, the majority of people are managing. What we've done at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, we've introduced what we call routine distress screening. So we have people in oncology clinics on an iPad, actually, filling out screening, reporting symptoms of depression, symptoms of anxiety, symptoms of pain, all of the other physical symptoms, social difficulties, so that for people who are having a lot of distress, we can get a rapid intervention. We think there ought to be routine supportive care, routine psychological support as part of the treatment process, uh, rather than waiting for difficulties to arise. Okay. Dr. Gary Roden, thanks so much. Thank you, Libby. That was Dr. Gary Roden, Head of Supportive Care at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, recording artist Phil Collins turns 67. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts datebook tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In London's West End, a revival of Eugene O'Neill's classic Long Day's Journey into Night, starring Jeremy Irons and Leslie Manville, is on stage. It's at the Wyndham Theatre until April 8th. L.A.'s J. Paul Getty Museum is celebrating its 20th anniversary by displaying spectacular new acquisitions, including works by Michelangelo and Degas. 
Legendary director Martin Scorsese has curated a two-part series celebrating 30 classic films from Republic Pictures, including the seldom-seen masterwork That Brennan Girl from 1946. It's at New York's Museum of Modern Art. And snowbirds with a sweet tooth are invited to the Museum of Ice Cream in Miami, Florida. It closes February 26th. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. Phil Collins celebrated his 67th birthday this week. The former drummer and singer for the popular rock band Genesis left the group in the mid-80s to start a solo career. Since then, he's had a string of number one hits, earning him multiple awards, including seven Grammys, two Golden Globes, and an Oscar. He's in an elite group one of only three recording artists to sell over 100 million albums worldwide, both as a solo artist and with Genesis. The other two are Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. We travel back to 1988. Here is Phil Collins' chart-topping cover of Groovy Kind of Love. When I'm feeling blue That was Phil Collins with Groovy Kind of Love, a chart-topping cover he recorded in 1988. Collins celebrated his 67th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.